0: Good evening, Grace America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Thank you so much for listening today. It's the end of the week. That means the Hillsdale Dialogue is here. My weekly conversation with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, www.hillsdale.edu for all of the offerings of the college. Both the Hillsdale Dialogues are on there, as are all of the free courses offered on the founding of the country, the Constitution, the progressivist assault on the Constitution a great introductory course in economics and many more things. You can sign up for the free speech digest at the Imprimus that comes monthly. All of this is for free because Hillsdale's mission is to renew and reestablish constitutional order in the United States, and Larry Arn and his colleagues make that a joy to participate in. All of my dialogues as well with Dr. Arn and his colleagues, available at com. The past nine weeks, we have focused on Winston Churchill. We jumped ahead by about 1,500 years in order to do so, given our present domestic international political crisis. We conclude that series today with Hitler having been uh, defeated and Churchill standing for election in Great Britain in the summer of 1945 and losing by a landslide to the socialists. And Dr. Arnold it is with no little irony that we are talking about this right now because the fight against domestic socialism, and I use that word advisedly, is underway in the United States right now, though people do not use the term. And Churchill first had to decide whether to quit or whether to fight on in the aftermath of his epic, enormous defeat in the summer of 1945. How long did it take him to make the decision that all was not lost?
1: Uh, Well... You know, this, uh, the answer is he never thought it was. A, he, he, I guess you know, sometime when he reached the age of majority, <laughs> 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 he was he was not given to that kind of thinking. We, we uh, remind me we should end with his last words in a major speech in the House of Commons. All right. Um, yeah, he he uh, he thought that was all very bad, and it was distressing to him, and. Uh, and on the other hand, something went with it, and that is, they were in power now, and they were doing all that stuff. And he'd been talking about what it was going to be like, and now he could point at what it was like. And that's a, that's a very important thing for people to remember if they don't like the trend of the government today. You know, it, one can see it now, and, and there's no use pining for the past. We've got what we've got today. And we're still free to talk about it and so we
0: should did he give thought to resigning did his colleagues want to push him aside because he was an advanced age and he was worn out and the war killed a lot of people I mean it just wore out to the point of death many of his colleagues
1: well he did you know he's when when the war was over let's see what was it Churchill was uh you know 70 over 70 years old he died when he was 90. he retired when he was 80 in 1955 um and he was slower, very much, and uh yeah, he thought from time to time about resigning, but uh he led the opposition and and there are complaints that he wasn't active enough in doing that, but if you just put his speeches together from that time, they're very vigorous, you know, and he he makes a lot of the fact that there's continued rationing, and one of his arguments was they've they've appointed more than half a million officials to run the country now and we have to pay for that and half a million is larger than any army we've ever kept in peacetime Hmm. and he evolved the argument into a sharp point over this six-year period that the theme is the socialism is the enemy of the people it wishes to control them and there was a guy named douglas jay and he said uh... There's a historian who just wrote an exculpatory article about this thing, but Douglas Jay was a minister in the Labor government, and he said, roughly, uh, the housewives in Britain have not really done the research to know what's best for their children to eat. The gentlemen in Whitehall, Whitehall is the place where the B- British government is located, the general, general gentlemen in Whitehall know better. And Churchill turned that into a catchphrase, and he just rang the changes on that. And, uh, you know, look at the contempt they have for you. And that was, by the way, a favorite expression of Margaret Thatcher's, the gentlemen in Whitehall know better. And, uh, and people were insulted by that. And in 51, and, and he kept up, uh, and, you know, and about the Gestapo thing, Churchill said several times in the 50 and 51 election cycles, that uh, he said uh, that this socialism has to turn into communism. See, and, and in Churchill's opinion, which he stated many times, communism and national socialism are actually the same phenomena. And so he never took that point back about the Gestapo. Instead, he repeated it, and he won a victory. Now, in 50, he lost the popular vote narrowly, and the labor majority was greatly cut back, And in 51, he won a majority of seats, and a slight or 300000 lost the popular vote. But that was his first election he won to become prime minister, and he had a majority of 17, if memory serves. And then he set about with two main objects, and one was to denationalize the economy, most of it, and the other was to get a summit meeting with Eisenhower Uh, who was elected president in '52, and Stalin. And then Stalin died in '53, and then Stalin's successors. And he never got that done. And he thought if we talked to them, we would make two points. And Eisenhower, and he was understood, he was thought by many Americans and somewhat by Eisenhower to be soft on the Soviet Union. But what he thought was, we're going to say two things to them. One is, we're just going to outgrow you, effectively the reverse of Khrushchev's speech at the United Nations that we're going to bury you, you wanted to tell them we were going to bury them. But also in the meantime, we were going to have overpowering military, and it's no use you having 60,000 tanks on the edge of Western Europe. You can't take it. We'll blow you away. And we're going to have troops there, too. So, <laughs> so his, his ending is very much like his career. Uh, Churchill, and this is very important to un- for people to understand. Churchill was one of the inventors of the social safety net. And I'll just try to give a quick picture as I understand it of his views, and I think they're continuous through his life. Um, Churchill thought that people who were very poor, uh, had misfortune, orphans, widows, that there should be comprehensive national systems of insurance into which people should pay. And it would keep them from falling below the line of sustenance. He also thought that you, he thought that was right. And you know, if in industrial revolution Britain, the poor were very poor, and if somebody got sick in the family, they would lose their children and face you know hunger. And he didn't like that. And he thought it's it's only right that something be done about that. It's a point of justice. And I comment that we've always had welfare in the United States of America from colonial times forward. Um, so that's the first point. And the second point is, you have to do that. Because there's a legacy of aristocracy in Britain, and and the people he wrote uh, early in his career will set their face like Flint against the money power unless they are given a road up. Hmm. So he he also thought it was necessary and of course through churchill's life the fastest growing party was the socialist party over the course of the fifty years he was in politics fifty five and 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 he feared that and thought it incompatible with civilization so how do you keep that from getting out of hand and what churchill thought was the british constitution was central and the way the, the Constitution worked is that, uh, I said this before about the American, the activity of talking in the House of Commons, uh, an elected body that people observe and have their own conversations to, so it's, it, it is the center of a national conversation, is how we work things out. And the government can't do more than can be discussed in this activity of talking. And so parliament is about great pieces of legislation that are debated through and everybody talks about them and there're always elections and the and the, the the activity of talking in the House of Commons is often talking about and calling into question what's done in the executive branch. And he understood that to be a separate thing, the executive government and he he said the executive power is never to dominate parliament. Hmm. And you see, that sets a limit on the size of the government because it can't do more than we can all talk about.
0: And this is clearly preceding the rise of the administrative state and the unleashing of, of independent agencies to, uh, upon the people.
1: And Churchill was a great enemy of bureaucracy. And so when he was in power, he was always trying to cut the budget, including the military budget. He was always cutting the military budget and wow. making them mad.
0: Uh, we'll be back to talk about that and about his return to power. Don't go anywhere, America. The Hillsdale Dialogue, the last of our conversations about Winston Churchill, continues with Dr. Larry Arn. Hugh for Hillsdale.com. Stay tuned. 21 minutes after the hour, America. It's Hugh Hewitt with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. All of the Hillsdale Dialogues, which we've been conducting from the beginning of the year forward, are available at Hugh for Hillsdale.com. All of the free online courses that Hillsdale offers, and they are many and wonderful, are all available at hillsdale.edu. And of course, there's a button over at my website if you want to get there in a shortcut. Larry Arnn, the, um, the last two weeks have seen the American people watching the terrible devastation of the Philippines. And of course, we rushed aid there in the form of the USS George Washington, a flotilla of ships. And our sailors have been sending pictures and the media has been there with Anderson Cooper and it's terribly devastating and everyone's moved and the generosity has been remarkable. As Churchill surveyed post-war Europe, the the ruin was much greater. Uh, England was bombed out, nothing worked, he's turned out of power, and yet he had to make an argument for six long years against socialists who who were promising to help people. He did have the advantage of a unified media, which is gone today, meaning he could command attention and his pen would command space in newspapers. And I'm not sure how he dealt with television when it arose. Perhaps you can tell us that. But I don't know that anyone can make the same kind of arguments now because they lack the ability to, to gather an audience.
1: Well, it it uh, Churchill was – so there's a whole bundle of things in the middle of that that require big thought. Let me first make a – make I, I want to underscore because it helps answer those questions you just asked this this point about the constitution just remember that if you're going to have a whole great nation of people involved in self-government the only vehicle by which it can be done is a constitution because there has to be some form in which they can cooperate to reach decisions and right now we really have the opposite of constitutional government because the, the you know the the, the people who passed Obamacare, I'm not going to mention the party, the sure. people who passed Obamacare did it on weekends, late at night, and by their party alone. And now, polls, are, people, we, we don't talk, we answer polls, and then the president makes adjustments of his own volition, as the polls indicate. And that's, you know, that's plebiscite government after the fashion that Woodrow Wilson wanted, and it's not debate and the reaching of a decision, which debates are, are, are regularly connected to elections. So Churchill was for that. Now, Churchill, by the way, about television and even radio, Churchill loved to go on the radio. He didn't like television very much, although he did it a few times. And the, the word was he wasn't very good at it, although he was old by then, so we don't really know what he would have been if it had been a big thing all along. What Churchill didn't like to do was reread the speeches that he gave in the House of Commons on the radio hmm. because he thought the House of Commons was the main scene of action. He thought that is what we do, right? And then people can read it. And Churchill proposed in the 1930s, and he meant it. He proposed, he thought that once Britain had universal suffrage, which it got in the late 20s, finally, and it had very wide suffrage after about nineteen hundred and you know that means men and women all over twenty one could vote in britain he proposed that he thought participation declines because it isn't a privilege anymore and so he proposed a system where you would be fined if you didn't vote and also a system in which anybody who had uh, enough property which is a tiny amount to pay rates that is say property taxes Another place, he said, anybody who earned any money, who had an income, they would get two votes. <laughs> and then it would be a privilege again, a privilege to be earned. And then people would pay attention again, because he wanted them to. He, he pined for the days when the political news was like the sports pages. Who did a good job yesterday? And, and you know, he, got, in an, in, he, he was often lampooned. In the press, and he even liked that.
0: Uh, We've got a touch of that today. There is a very vigorous online debate, often full of venom and invective, but nevertheless entertaining as can be. But it isn't unified in the way that a dozen newspapers can make the weather in London and the and the outlying areas.
1: That's right. And, and also, you don't and see, in a liberal society, and I mean that word liberal means free, limited government. In a liberal society, you know the, one of the advantages of representative government is people can get on with their lives, right? And so this is Churchill is describing a way in which we can all be active, but we can also get on with our lives. And it's true in every free country that has any long history, and ours for sure, that it's only in times of great crisis that people pay intense attention to politics constantly, right? And, you know, nobody would have gone to the Lincoln-Douglas debate if they'd been held in 1815. Right. And nobody would have read the Federalist Papers if they had been written in 1815. Right. People weren't doing things like that. And so now is a very unusual time. I mean, politics are so intense right now, and the stakes are so high, that goodness you, people are listening to the Hillsdale Dialogues in part for the purpose of getting background and they're willing to go back to Homer <laughs>
0: and, and to understand how to argue that. Then that takes me to that question I mentioned earlier. He was willing to do this against the backdrop of utter ruin, the kind of ruin that we see in a part of the Philippines, which was widespread. I, I think we kind of take it for granted. It must have been it take enormous courage to argue against socialism when everything is leveled.
1: And, and you know, they were censorious. You know, the way the government can be today, you know, if you speak a wrong word, if you have an unfashionable opinion, you got to be really careful. And, uh, you know, the establishment can turn against you because it is driven by pressure, which can rise up on these blogs and discredit you. And, uh, you know, they, they uh, you know, make yourself unpopular with moveon.org and see if they won't take some of your time. Yep. Yep. And uh, and so Churchill faced all that, and you know he was very hurt by watching his country fall apart. Everything is scuttle, he would say, scuttling the empire, scuttling the economy, scuttling the greatness of Britain. And he would mutter that to people in private. Sometimes it was wounding to him to watch.
0: But he never ever, he did not flag or fail. He ke- he kept deciding to lead, and it must have driven. Anthony Eden crazy because after the break we have to talk about preparing people to follow you. But he never intended other than to stand for election again.
1: Right, that's right. Yeah, he he meant to, he meant to win one, and on his arguments because, wouldn't it be an unsatisfactory career, if and he very much regarded it so if if the only opportunity you got was in the middle of a disastrous war, because war peace is not for war. War is for peace, right? And Churchill very much thought that, right? So he regarded his career as incomplete, his service incomplete, unless he could establish the things he advocated
0: as policy. Even as he gave the Fulton speech about the Iron Curtain descending across Europe, he did great service during his out years, but he wanted back in. When we come back from break with Dr. Larry Arn and the Hillsdale Dialogue, we talk about what he did when he got back in and how he prepared or didn't prepare Anthony Eden to take over the office of prime ministership. Go nowhere. You're listening to Hillsdale Dialogue. Thirty four minutes after the hour, America. Hugh Hugh. At the end of the week means Dr. Larry Arn of Hillsdale College, Hillsdale edu. Our Hillsdale Dialogues take place at this time almost every week. Uh, Dr. Arnn, uh, in all the 10 weeks we've been talking about Churchill, we've often mentioned uh, people like Beaverbrook, the great press baron, Brendan ba- uh, Bracken, his uh, young protege. We've talked about his doctor. We've talked about his children. I don't think we've mentioned Anthony Eden three times. Yeah, and, and and it's curious that the man that he had been grooming to take over him, for him, and and did take over for him when he did eventually retire after he won his election in '51 is so little remarked upon us in our planning.
1: Uh, well, Eden was, uh, you know, Eden was a heck of a guy. Also, Anthony Eden, by the way, was very beautiful. He was a very handsome man and uh, good on TV. And his photographs of him just were riveting. And so he was better equipped to be a modern media politician than little stubby Winston Churchill ever was. You know, Winston Churchill was so short, he was exactly my height.
0: Oh, he was? Okay.
1: <laughs> and uh, uh, so, yeah, he, he and Eden was a, a fine human being and, in some important senses, a great man. Uh, but they had tough relations, because Eden was always hectoring Churchill to, when are you going to let me do it, win, 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 win. And Churchill kept putting it off. And uh, he kept putting it off, hoping he was going to get a summit with uh, Stalin and Ike, and then Mollenkopf and Ike. And, uh, uh, and, yeah, so their relations were strained during the second premiership. Eden was ill a lot and didn't last very long as prime minister after he became prime minister. Macmillan, a protege of Churchill, much more than Eden ever was, uh, Macmillan did last a long time.
0: Did he do a good job in raising up young people to be future leaders?
1: Uh, Well, uh, that's a very complex question because, um, you know, Aristotle says, power shows the man. So it's hard to know who they were. But Macmillan is an example. He was a colleague of Churchill from very early in Macmillan's career and for decades. And uh, you know, was good at politics and admired Churchill very much and Eden too, although Eden had a more independent standing. But there was a bunch of young men and they were very loyal to Churchill and they were members of parliament and they helped him make his trouble in the 1930s and most of them he put in office when he got into power, and they did become the new
0: conservative party. And that conservative party, when he took over, what was its goal, the dismantling of socialism, and did he get it done? Uh, mostly, yeah,
1: mostly. And, uh, and, you know, the socialists soon abandoned nationalization as their main technique, although in the Wilson administration in the mid-'60s, they, they did nationalize steel. Uh, and they didn't de- renationalize most of the industries that Churchill denationalized, and he, you know, he he broke them. And you know, in, in my book, soon finished, um, I go into some of the. the in, in 1952, the year after Churchill was reelected, they published the new Fabian essays, and there, there's a lot of rethinking of socialism and their actual fears of bureaucracy and its power, which Churchill had used to such good effect in bringing down the Socialists, the Labor Party. And so he compelled, as Margaret Thatcher later compelled, a lot of rethinking on them and did a service for them and for the country by doing so.
0: Nixon was very proud that he got to meet Churchill and and spoke of it often because while vice president he greeted him in the United States during his last premiership. Did Thatcher ever...
1: Uh, I don't think so. But, you know, I'm not sure about that. If she did, it was only fleeting. After 1962, Churchill was weak. He died in January of 65. And so, you know, in 55, she was a young girl, and that's when he retired. And then he had really six or seven pretty healthy years after that. So how old would she have been in 62? She would have been you know, getting on for 20, something like that.
0: Highly unlikely, then. Yeah, not likely. And when Kennedy was shot, as we approached the 50th anniversary of that, is any reaction recorded from Chartwell?
1: He knew, but he was weak by then. He did watch on television Kennedy making him an honorary citizen, but he was too weak to travel.
0: When we come back, we're going to sum up Churchill's quite extraordinary life, including his last words in a major speech in the Parliament, which he had loved so much, and that which gave him joy and that which gave him sorrow and a couple of last lessons. All of the Churchill conversations are, of course, part of the Hillsdale dialogues. every one of which is available at hughforhillsdale.com, and as are all of the Hillsdale courses at hillsdale.edu. All of them for free for your edification. Go there right now, hillsdale.edu. I'll be right back with Dr. Larry Arn. Forty four minutes after the Our American show here with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. Each week at this time, we gather with Dr. Arne and or one of his colleagues from Hillsdale University to talk about one of the great works or people of the West. These past 10 weeks, we focused on Winston Spencer Churchill, the last lion Manchester called him and all of his epic life. This last segment devoted to that. No doubt he'll recur in other conversations down the road. But Dr. Arn, uh, you you mentioned. His last words in a major speech and and so that we do not short them, tell us about that setting and what he used that occasion to talk about.
1: Well, his last great speech was given in March of nineteen fifty five and it was about the explosion of the hydrogen bomb and uh, it's a good It's a good way to explain the kind of what I see as a unity in churchill's career. Churchill thought that war had always been terribly dangerous, and in modern conditions, much worse. All civilization could be wiped out by it. Churchill thought that the problems of peacetime politics had always been terribly. Most nations don't live very well. But in modern times, they were given to utopian scientific thought that made them potentially much worse socialism at home, national socialism, and communism abroad. He thought that this worsening of war and worsening of peace came from the same thing, which was a technical outlook on life that reduces everything, including human beings themselves, to subjects of an engineering project. Hmm. Uh, it's a rebellion against nature, he thought, that, that makes us uh, forgetful of the necessities under which we live and the real goods we can achieve. We look for perfections now, while at the same time we deny there's any standard of perfection. One of Churchill's first warnings against the Socialists is they will abolish the family and destroy that. And, you know, bureaucratic government is no great friend of the family. It tries to replace it. Um, So his last speech was about the hydrogen bomb, which was much more powerful and multiple multiple times more powerful than an atomic bomb. And he said that when it was announced, we had entered a, an a, a, a epoch both measureless and laden with doom. And then in this speech, he goes on to invent the policy of deterrence that actually kept the West safe until the Soviet Union fell. And, uh, and it's brilliant speech. It, it contains the phrase, safety shall become the twin brother of annihilation, and security, the sturdy child of terror. Hmm.
0: <laughs> hmm.
1: Very clever man. I don't think I got that quote exactly right, but that's close to it. And then he says that uh, deterrence can't answer all the questions. He said, a uh, a, uh, a, a madman in the mood of Hitler in his bunker could not be deterred. That is blind. And then in the last two paragraphs of the speech... Which so he,
0: very, for, I pause, he foresaw our problem. He exactly. foresaw Kim sure. Jong-il. He foresaw the mullahs. He foresaw it.
1: That's right. That's right. I mean, a man right now has nuclear weapons whose father or grandfather, I can't remember which despot it was, in North Korea, once kidnapped a couple because he liked their films from Taiwan and made them live in North Korea for years so they could entertain him. Yeah. So... What kind of crazy is that? Yeah. And uh, and so Churchill did foresee that. And in general, Ch- Churchill was for getting rid of all nuclear weapons if you could find a way safely to do it. But that would require... Everything points back in Churchill to the right understanding of human co- equality and to the right form of the Constitution. In other words, just like James Madison and Thomas Jefferson, especially Madison, just like Abraham Lincoln the principles of the declaration and the practices of the American Constitution are the hope for mankind, the last best hope of mankind on earth. And Churchill himself said similar things even about those two documents many times.
0: So at the end of his life, as as you know, he leaves in fifty five, he lives another decade. Um, yeah. did he grow gloomy or optimistic? Because there were these were period he blessedly was not around for the Beatles, I guess. I guess he must have seen some, of it, but the the sort of mod culture sweep Britain. But what was his mood?
1: Well, he he uh, he he painted. He
0: uh, you know until about
1: 1962. So for what seven years uh, he painted. He went around on the yacht of Aristotle Onassis. He went into horse racing and he won big. Um, he. Uh, didn't talk a lot he never spoke in the house of commons although he served until nineteen sixty two he would go and just sit there uh... he uh... is described often as having a lot of fun his uh, doctor describes him as a as a sad lonely man poking at a fire with a stick but that was really only after his a big stroke in sixty two reduced his powers very greatly there's a lot of sadness in age and he had some of that, but he also had a lot of joy. And he was a great man, and he was not given to gloom. In this speech about the hydrogen bomb, he says, uh, over time, deterrence may grow, and I'm paraphrasing the speech. And he says, we can hope that the tormented generations of this time may march forward together into a more serene and free period. Meanwhile, meanwhile, these are his last words. Never flinch, never weary, never despair.
0: Great last words on which to conclude ten terrific weeks. The Gilbert papers are all at hillsdale.edu, or at least at the college, as is a marvelous statue of Winston Churchill. Who sculpted that, Larry? Uh,
1: her name is Heather Trichter, a recent graduate of Hillsdale College at the time that she sculpted it with help from the head of our uh, sculpting here, Tony Fredakis.
0: I think anyone who travels through uh, uh, Western Michigan should stop, if only to see Thatcher in Churchill on the campus of Hillsdale College. Dr. Larry Arndt, thank you. For all of the Hillsdale Dialogues, go to Hugh for Hillsdale.com or go directly to Hillsdale.edu for all of the free online courses. All of them are worth your while. The last 10 weeks, especially of the Hillsdale Dialogues on Churchill, worth listening to again and again. Next week we resume where we left off to talk about Churchill With St. Augustine and what was going on when the barbarians were flooding the Roman world, he didn't despair either. He did not despair, very similar to Churchill's last words. There's a message in that. I'll be right back, America. Stay tuned. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show.